Welcome to Real Life Rescues, a podcast that's going to go behind the scenes and take an in-depth look into the operational and personal accounts of EMS first responders from Israel's largest fully volunteer EMS provider, United Atzala. Any volunteers available in Beit Shemesh across from the Noach Ayala trails? And units available in Tamaria near the Kinara for an 11-year-old boy pulled into the water, possibly drowning. Eight or seven is in the water with the boat. Backup units needed. Hi, welcome back to another episode. I'm Raphael. And I'm Dovi Maisel. Today, uh, unfortunately, we're going to be talking about uh, another terror attack that this time took place in Jerusalem uh, a few days ago. Yeah, looks, sights, and sounds of, uh, of things we wanted to forget here about 15, 20 years ago struck again. And those images of, uh, of uh, buses that are um, with shrapnel all over them and bus stops blown up, those are pictures that we really wanted to forget. But unfortunately, last week hit again with a double bombing. Yeah, and this, uh, it was... It was- synchronized um, to take place very close in approximate time. Uh, we understand that the, the bombs were set off remotely um, and it took place one place at a bus stop, major bus stop right at the exit of Jerusalem in the western uh, exit of Jerusalem. And then another one not too far away, a couple kilometers further north at the remote junction. Uh, it took place about 15, 20 minutes apart. Um, in, in both instances, we actually had volunteers who were driving on the street when the explosions took place and simply drove right up to the uh, location in order to begin treating people and triaging and letting us know at dispatch what was happening. One of them was actually that close on the one to the entrance to Jerusalem. He was on his ambucycle and from the uh, explosion, he was thrown off the bike, literally. So as of course, all these things happen as safety first for all of our responders. Uh, That's one thing to treat, but in this instance, the volunteer was able to get up, was thankfully not injured, uh, and uh, begin assessing the situation, relaying back to dispatch what had happened exactly so they get a clear picture, and then bring in, of course, more first responders from the area. Um, very quickly, a lot of responders uh, arrived. Unfortunately, though, uh, now two people have been killed uh, as a result of those explosions. It's like Dovi said, this is something which... You know, Jerusalem, unfortunately, was very common back uh, between the years 2000, 2005, but now uh, has calmed down since then. Um, and we hope this doesn't uh, show an uptick of these instances occurring in the future. Yeah, but it did stir up some of those uh, bad memories from the past and, of course, ignited our post-trauma. Our, I, I would say not our personal post-trauma, but rather the... The, um, the national post-trauma. The national post-trauma and the Jerusalemites... Um, post-trauma. The incidents themselves was a, um, it was bombs that were preset um, about an hour, as a, the investigation says, about an hour before the detonation in a bus stop where in early morning, seven o'clock in the morning, uh, many people are at the bus stop um, as people are on their way to work. Um, and the first one went off and there was uh, two severely injured, um, another three uh, moderately injured. I would say it's like five reds and uh, and another seven greens um, on the scene. If we'll talk triage style. Um, Dovi likes color war. <laughs> yeah, but I, I got to say, memory or no memory, within seven minutes, there was not one victim. Seven minutes from explosion, there was not one victim on site anymore. They were all on the ambulances on the way to the hospitals. And when you talk about golden hour and, and, and stuff like that, within... 20 minutes, 25 minutes from bombing, two of these uh, 
uh, victims who are already in the operating room. Yeah, it was it's incredible. And the, the explosions took place next to uh, both our uh, very close to our headquarters and, uh, and of course, the ambulance headquarters, which were both organizations were able to respond very, very quickly. Um, like you said, actually, was- the dispatchers heard the explosion go off. The dispatchers are sitting in dispatch. They hear the explosion go off. And about five seconds later, the volunteer that was thrown off his bike gets on the radio, giving over a, a, um, a very uh, informative report to the dispatch of exactly what's going on there. And literally within seven minutes, all of the patients were on ambulance on their way to the hospital already. Right. It was, it was absolutely, the response time was absolutely incredible. So let's talk about a little bit about what, what response is like. What, what did the volunteers see or what did they see when they, when they arrived at that scene? Um, obviously there was a lot of blast injuries. Um, there was shrapnel that had taken place in the one at the bus stop at right outside the building was that, or near the building, uh, there was a bike that exploded because the bike was actually chained to the fence where the bag was left, uh, and the bike flew away in multiple pieces. And what we saw in this attack, which really stirred up those memories, was that the bomb wasn't only comprised of um, the explosive, but it was packed with screws, bolts, nails, Ball and, and little uh, iron uh, balls, like iron pellets that went flying for a great distance, um, impacting, uh, well, in both cases, impacting the vehicles. You could see the vehicles, the, the private cars and the, and the, the bus stop and, and the bus, and the bus, bus that that you could see the whole front windshield of it and side windows halfway down the side of the bus, all blown away. And you can see the, the holes that were, that, uh, were uh, scattered all over the bus from that high velocity um, pellets of, of metal screws and iron balls that go flying. And, and, and obviously we know the effect of those when they hit a human being, uh, they simply tear the person apart from the inside as well. Yeah, when I, when I arrived at the scene, we actually saw the police still picking up a lot of those ball bearings and uh, nails and screws from the ground in the area that was cordoned off. Um, they're literally just picking them up and, and putting them into evidence bags as they were uh, collecting all the evidence to try and, and hopefully catch the perpetrators. Um, one of the, uh, of course, the psychotrauma and crisis response unit was dispatched to both locations as well, providing psychological first aid. One of the people we treated was um, a young young woman, uh, 18, 19 years old, uh, who had, had, had not really ever experienced something like this before. Um, and she was uh, in a complete state of shock and, and emotional distress. Um, one of our volunteers actually, uh, one of our protocols from the psychotrauma unit is to also remove the person from the scene of the danger and thereby help them process the idea that they are now no longer in danger. The danger is past. Uh, we remind them of that and try and get them out of their loop of, uh, from the psychological distress, uh, remind them the danger is past and that they are safe in a safe location. Um, and this woman actually, one of the things that she told the responder who, who was working with her was that. Uh, she really needed to go to Mevaseret, which is the next town over. Um, and the responder was kind enough, said, okay, you know, that's what you need right now in order to continue to be able to process and, and function normally, then I'll take you to Mevaseret. And actually took her to Mevaseret to meet with uh, with family members. Uh, and they were able to build her a social network um, that was right after and, and be there for support to be able to provide her and help her calm down and process the incident of itself. So it's obviously uh, not only the injured, and like you said, there were, uh, close to 14 people at that scene. Um, and in the second bombing, there were uh, additional. I think the total was 31. Uh, 31 injured. people in total were injured in these two, in this double attack. 
And that's not necessarily including all the people who suffered psychologically or emotionally from the these attacks. And then, like you said, came back to the idea of PTSD. A lot of the people who were there uh, are suffering from emotional reactions, stress reactions, or acute stress reactions, they're called. And they are, uh, they are in need of uh, continuing care, which is what we've organized for them, either in the hospital or with social workers. And as much as we stress the safety uh, component here, it's very difficult for the responder who witnesses the explosion to exercise safety in this situation because they immediately go on autopilot. And unfortunately, I don't know if to say fortunately or unfortunately, the way we work within these bomb scenes, and this brings us back, yes, to 1520 years ago, is that even though the scene has not been cleared by uh, the bomb squad, police, or whatever, we work within the scene under the, the imminent threat that there is or possibly is another uh, potential a secondary device. Yeah. A secondary device, and not only that, but uh, we work alongside the police, which are sometimes starting the manhunt on the scene. And the second bomb scene, actually, what happened was was there was a threat that the terrorist might still be on site, um, and this was uh, called over the radio a number of times. The police swarmed the area, obviously, you know, with the uh, special forces and you know their dogs and everything, in search of uh, of a potential. Uh, perpetrator terrorist that was still on site, and this complicates the opera the, the work on scene, and, and that's why I guess part of our um, uh, our our challenge is to really get those patients scoop and run as fast as you can. Do that A B half C up on the first riggy that, that pulls up and get them out of there and clear the scene and let the police do their work. And I think uh, our our. It's been many years, but our autopilot, I guess, just kicks in automatically. Well, it's not just the autopilot. It's the training. Uh, you know, we've we've done a great job over the year of doing MCI trainings for yeah. a lot of people. And post, that, post, that goes in. Post Mount Meron and, and Givad Zev, two incidents we've spoken about in the past on this podcast, is uh, we've implemented vast national trainings for mass casualty incident. Um, I mean, we conducted a number of large-scale events uh, practicing literally this, this sort of scenario. And that's why, so that, God forbid, if these things uh, happen, and, and they just did, uh, that our responders can kick it into autopilot and automatically know what to do and how to proceed, um, you know, putting on the orange hat to, to show that they're the first responder at the scene and become incident commander until someone else comes in and takes over, uh, and then, obviously, treating the patients as fast as we can getting them out of the area. Um those are all things which we work on. We work on continuously here, uh, and that's why we work on them. And an, and another part after these incidents is uh, what usually happens when there is some sort of terror attack, immediately because of the public stress, everything seems to be a terror attack. And in the minutes that follow, uh, minutes, hours after a terror attack, then then we get many different calls of a flat tire, a car, a car tire that explodes will immediately jump the the, the 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 emergency switch again and everybody will go running until uh, until then they said, oh no, it was just a tire that exploded. Well, we like had that, that the next day. There was the next day there was, a, I think it was someone closed a, a garbage container really, really loudly in Cholon, which is not, not an area that's frequented by, by that many uh, uh, people who are foreign to the neighborhood. Uh, and and someone called it in as a terror attack. They thought it was a terror attack. And un un unfortunately, this this is the reality here. Actually, last night they uh, they found um, a uh, improvised explosive device um, in in this area as well. People uh, bystanders saw a suspicious uh, bag and called it in. 
and it was an improvised uh, explosive device, an IED, as we call, as we call them. And and people are, uh, you know, they're on the edge here now. So there was a big shopping mall in Haifa. I think it was yesterday or the day before that uh, somebody called out that there's a terrorist there and immediately put a whole shopping mall into a into panic mode and people went running. So it, it, it's sort of really. Um, it's it's a challenge, not only in the response, but also in, in in the aftermath of this, how it affects society. Right. There was actually uh, a, uh, also a, a shooting that took place because someone suspected another person was a terrorist uh, in Benjamin. Yes. Um, in an intersection, that was a very unfortunate incident as well. Uh, and people are on edge. People are definitely on edge, and uh, it affects it affects us all in in our own ways. Um, but it's something we sort of, as first responders, we have to take into account and recognize when we're going out to a scene. Um, and now at this point, any scene, uh, we basically have to realize that that's sort of in the back of everyone's minds right now. Is is this another uh, situation or another wave of incidents uh, like we saw you know, last year, even in, in May or in March, um, where one incident you know, breeds another. And of course, there's also the copycat effect. Uh, the fact that, you know, someone did this and succeeded obviously means that other people who are of the same mindset um, will try around this time period as it's well. Like, it's like what we, we've experienced here in the past year and a half uh, to, to two years is the TikTok effect, um, or they call it the TikTok terrorism, where um, terrorists will uh, actually post on TikTok um, their achievements and the or even their plans or or their plans and this will uh, create that buzz of of just like any other challenge that we see on TikTok that we can like or not like that our kids are involved in, uh, but unfortunately it goes also to the extent of of terrorism. Correct, and that's uh, it's something which I mean the security forces are dealing with and counterterrorism units are dealing with on the EMS level we're we're dealing with a little bit less, but it, again, it's we're something dealing with the consequences. There. We're dealing with the consequences of of those. So we have been in a process, but this definitely sped up and expedited our need to roll out our uh, our new uh, trauma prep uh, system for the volunteers. As you know, all of our responders carry around in their either ambucycle or in their private car. They carry a full kit that's got the oxygen and tourniquets bandages, CPR equipment, baby delivery kit, etc. But we understood that those, while being uh, uh, fairly stocked, um, they need their ability to move around fast in an, in a scene that is uh, uh, can be hostile or, or, or at least not comfortable to move around with your full kits. And we've actually started a campaign just recently and we'll be deploying these upgraded um, um, IFAC kits on steroids, basically, that while every volunteer has their regular kit in the back of their car or on the ambicycle, now we're, we're uh, stocking them with a kit that can be literally on their thigh. Usually you see this in the military scene, you see this in the in the tactic units and things like that, but here we understand the need on the street when you witness one of these incidents and you don't want to waste time and pulling out the whole kit, getting everything you need. You've got this on your leg. You've got your tourniquets, your, your cat tourniquets in there. You've got your your uh, hemostatic dressings. You've got all the, uh, the shears, everything you need. You got packing material. You got packing materials. You got everything in there that you need. Immediately, an ALS have their needles and have everything that they need in there as well, so that while other volunteers will be able to back you up and bring you the equipment, you can immediately stop the bleed and perform these life saving procedures. And hopefully, within 
few weeks, we'll already have fully deployed the star volunteers that are just going about their day. Right. And we've, we've actually tested these in the field a little bit. There's uh, there's a few volunteers who, who received kits like this in the past uh, who've been putting them into use, and they've been proved to be very, very effective. But not only that, we saw recently, um, was it the, uh, there, was, there was a bus crash not too far away, also in Jerusalem, uh, which uh, one of the volunteers took off a piece of his clothing um, and use it as a tourniquet. And use it as a tourniquet. So he said, if, if we're already getting to that level where it's, the speed is such a uh, it's not, issue. It, it, it's not only that, Rafael. It's also the fact that you don't walk around the shopping mall with your kit on your back while you're shopping right. with your family. And you can coincidentally um, bump into the event or the event can happen in front of your face. You don't have time to run down to the parking lot, grab your kit and come back. So these kits can be hanging from your belt and strapped to your leg and, and, and you're ready to go and do these life-saving actions and treatments uh, while the backup units, which will be arriving, will have the, the, the full equipment. And, and Rafal was referring to that accident. This was a story of a, a, a bus that lost its brakes um, on a downhill on an entrance to a shopping mall, and it was like a rampage. And, and he, I don't know, he ran over how many people there? I think it was 13. It was 13 people with, with some of them severely injured, DOAs, et cetera. And, and, and they literally improvised for the first two minutes until the, the other volunteers showed up and the, and the full EMS showed up. They were improvising literally with their shirts. They were improvising tourniquets and bandages. And then that was like a, a wake-up call for us. Like, hey, the call doesn't always come in when you're totally ready, sitting on the ambucycle with the equipment on the back. Things well, can we're, happen. We're, we're very familiar with that already. <laughs> We did. We also spoke about that episode anytime, anywhere. Um, but they definitely do happen. Um, I actually used the, the one of the one of the original testing trauma kits uh, recently at a car accident that I responded to uh, just a little bit further south of Jerusalem on the highway, uh, where two cars hit each other head on, uh, airbags open, and everything was going on. A woman was bleeding, and I uh, I pulled out a bunch of the bandages from uh, the turn from the uh, tick from from the trauma kit. The tick. Um, the tick. Sorry, my Hebrew is You know, that's in. interesting. Tick in Hebrew is kit in English. That's uh, true. That's it's, a play on letters. There you go. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It, it flips around and becomes a palindrome. Um, so the uh, I pulled out my, my trauma kit and began already using the materials inside to treat one of the patients uh, two days ago. So uh, they're becoming very, very useful. Um, and it's something where, like I said, we're going to be giving out now to all the volunteers uh, across the country. Um, in order so that whenever, God forbid, some things like this happen again, yeah, uh, Unfor we're going to be ready. Unfortunately, never a dull moment here. So what can I say? We, I think we, I think Tuesday afternoon at 3.30 last week, there was a dull minute. Oh. I think it was that, there was like one for minute. You. For me. Somewhere. For you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Challenging. Challenging neighborhood over here. Um, well, it's always challenging in EMS, I think, for everyone, for all you guys as well out there. And girls. When I say guys, Women. I mean the gang. I'll say the gang, okay? okay the gang the is gang. everyone. Gang, gang is guys is. and girls. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge, I think, coming from a responder. And we mentioned already that the the responders themselves need care after. Of course, we've talked about that at length uh, and as well. But it's make sure whenever some of these scenarios happen that all the responders receive calls, get spoken to, know that they can open up to your fellow responders to whoever's in-house, uh, you know, dealing with trauma, with therapy, with psycho psychological first aid for the internal teams. Um, every, each of those things is, is very important after any of these incidents take place. Uh, hopefully, all you listeners out there don't ever have to deal with any of the incidents, but we all know that there's 
similar things that take place. So just uh, just uh, as a side note, Rafael, um, uh, we got to remember that they, while all focus and spotlight is on these double uh, bombings at the same time, you've got grandma that gets up with chest pains. And we got to make sure that uh, um, th that she gets treated as well. So a lot of the work that's done on dispatch side is really to divert um, and manage the regular emergency calls during an incident like this as much as the the adrenaline rush for the dispatchers and for the responders in the field. Uh, we need not to forget all of those regular calls, those car accidents that are happening, the chest pains, and 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 a lot of the the mission of the dispatch there is to really uh, make sure that no fa call falls between the cracks in these situations. Right, and so, and as we always joke about our dispatchers and and how much they hate us and give us that call after our shift is over, exactly when we're on the way back to our our base and like they still call us out. Um, as much as, as much as we like to rag on them every now and then, um, it's really important to recognize that they too are going through a lot that they too are, like you said, are dealing with this. And, and they also get the call from those people frantically screaming about the bombing. And, and we find that also even them, we send into a, a psychotrauma session to, uh, to debrief there as well, because we think it's a, we find that, you know, hearing the screaming and hearing the, the, the calls for help. Um, th that affects them as well, and and they're uh, uh, while they're doing that, uh, they they need also to take care of those regular calls that are for happening. sure very much so, and they and they have to attribute the proper resources and allocate them to each one, uh, like you said. Um, so definitely they get a, a tip of the hat as well, and I think uh, you know from the experience that we just had this past week, everyone worked incredibly well together. People took up uh, you know the the call volume that was going on at the same time as the one dispatcher was dealing with the major incidents. Um, they switched over and piggybacked and assisted one another so that nothing really fell through the cracks. So they really deserve a tip of our hat. Uh, we don't say it enough. Hat tipped. Hat tipped Kudos definitely. to all those dispatchers out there. As someone who dispatched for many years, your file, good for you for bringing that up. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. And, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get you back next time. And stay safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>